One more time, good morning. If it's your first time here, we're glad you joined us. And uh, if you're listening online, thanks for tuning in. Um, We are going to continue. Last week, we started a new series called The Greatest Sermon. Um, And I said, look, this is not me being prideful. I stole the thing from Jesus. Uh, It's a Sermon on the Mount. We're just kind of walking through verse by verse this 10-minute message that Jesus gave. And it's the longest red-letter section in Scripture, and there's so much amazing truth in it. And this morning, we're going to continue to look at some of that. I've got in my hand a note card. Like, it's a pretty simple thing, right? Three by five. This one doesn't even have lines on it. But the things that you can do with a note card are pretty amazing. Like, a number of you have probably made flashcards before, where you binge-studied and whatnot, had all your little details written on them. I don't know how many of us conjugated or parsed verbs and things like that. When I was in Spanish class, we had this box, and it had all of our note cards in it. And I'll never forget the first one I ever filled out. A blow, a blah, a blamos, a blonde. I've forgotten some of it. My Spanish is terrible. But that was my cheat sheet. And fun fact, students, um, some note cards are like two-ply toilet paper. You can actually peel them in half. So one time I had a teacher that said you can have one note card for the test. And I found that you could peel that thing apart and get four sides out of it. It was like, felt like I was in prison. It was writing so thin. But, you know, you can do a lot with a note card. You can be really productive. I've got a friend that is really more of a mentor than a friend. Um, he is undoubtedly one of the greatest leaders in the country. Um, he was an executive pastor at a church in Louisiana. Um, when he stepped down and went on to a new church, they had to f- hire four people to replace him. Um, that's how productive he is. He gets up at 4 o'clock in the morning. By the time I wake up, Scotty has done more in his day pro- like being productive than I will ever do. Um, but he wakes up at 4 o'clock, and every morning he takes out a note card. He spends 1% of his day writing out what he's going to do. That's about 14 minutes. And when I am in a really productive mode, you will notice note cards around my office because I'll actually do that, like take 1% of my day and just write out, hey, here's the things I need to do. But also on a note card, you can learn. See, this one is actually about 13 years old. In fact, I I messaged a buddy of mine this morning and said, hey, man, I still got this card. Um, Years ago, a friend of mine that I worked with, we were trying to get better at memorizing Scripture. That's not my strongest um, spiritual gift is how I would put it. And so we would write these note cards out, just put a scripture on them, and I would put it in my car, like not over the speed limit, but over like the gas tank so I could see it, and this is kind of how I started to memorize scripture. This is one of the first ones we ever wrote out. It's Matthew 5, 6. It's one of the verses that we're going to look at today. We're kind of walking through these beatitudes, these the supreme blessedness is how scripture would describe it. Blessed are those who do these things. And last week we looked at a couple of them. This week we're going to look at a couple more. We're going to start today in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 6. It's going to be on the screen or you can follow along in your Bible. Matthew 5, 6, it says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now, we're going to continue as we walk through these. Here's what I want to do. I just want to unpack this verse. I want to take it apart, and we're actually going to start at the end and kind of work our way back because it talks about satisfaction. If the human life were an experiment, one of the things that you would take away from it is that we are all trying to be satisfied in some way. Like everything that we do, we do some things that are just mundane, you do them and they're done. But most of the things that we do, we try and do in order to be satisfied, right? Like when we get done here, you're going to leave. You're going to go to lunch. Maybe you're going to eat lunch at your house. Maybe you're going to go out. Maybe it's that time. But it's going to be lunchtime, so there's a couple things. One, you're probably going to be hungry. And two... You are going to eat in order to satisfy that hunger, right? That's why no one eats one chip. 
No one gets one piece of popcorn and goes, that was delicious. No, we go into eating in order to satisfy that hunger. Like when you enter into a relationship, like if it's one where it's going to be like, this is my spouse one day, you go beyond that, oh, this is a friend that satisfies friendship, and you go, no, I am looking to satisfy more. I'm looking for a spouse. I'm looking to satisfy other desires and things like that. And so we go into it a little bit more. When you go to work, like hopefully your job brings you satisfaction. It brings it in one way in the sense that, okay, I go, I don't, maybe I don't like my job, but it pays me, and so there's some satisfaction in that. Or maybe I go to my job and I enjoy it. It fulfills this desire to be productive, to, to contribute to society. Like all of our life is about finding satisfaction. And we do that sometimes in a way that's not always healthy because everyone is trying to find satisfaction. Like Mick Jagger's been looking for it for a long time. He just can't get none. Like he needs to read Matthew 5, 6 and he will finally have his answer. Because here's the thing. Everyone wants satisfaction, but true satisfaction only comes through Christ. We know this for a few reasons. One, if you go back to Ecclesiastes and you read Ecclesiastes 3, Solomon writes, God has put eternity in man's heart. Like there is a part in our soul that is longing for something more. Even in people who are without Christ, not in Christ, without him. There's this natural desire to try and fill that part of our heart that something feels like it's missing. And so all of mankind seeks to do something to find satisfaction. But it, true satisfaction comes through Christ. We need an increased desire for righteousness. So if we, we've talked about satisfaction, let's move back a little bit. Because at the heart of this is righteousness. What is righteousness? It's a conforming to God's will. Righteousness is looking at life itself and saying, I want to conform to God's will. And not just some of it, all of it. It's not picking and choosing what parts we go, hey, I'll be righteous in that area, but this one, I'm just going to kind of let that one go. No, this is looking at it and saying, I want to conform to God's will in every area possible. Like, this isn't just righteousness that we define. This is actually divine righteousness. And here's something that's kind of hard to see in this verse. So when you read it in your Bible, it says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they should be satisfied. Now, that's in English, right? The Bible is, this particular section is written in Greek. We know that this means all of righteousness if you actually look back at the original language because the way they wrote it. In Greek, there are some grammatical things that we don't practice. But in this, anytime you talk about hunger or thirst, they would add the preposition of. In, so it would read a little different. It would say, I would hunger for of food. I would thirst for of wine. Now, when we say that, it sounds kind of weird, right? But what they were implying in that was, it was a, really, it was kind of a courtesy thing. They were saying, hey, if you go to your friend's house, and you're sitting at your friend's house, and he's going to serve you some food, you would say, I want of food, so that he would know, look, I don't want all of your food. Like, I didn't show up to just raid your entire refrigerator. I would like some food. I don't want all of your wine. I just want some of it. Now, what's interesting here, when we read this, of is not used. So here you've got this grammatical thing where hunger and thirst are both used, and you should have of in there. It doesn't say of righteousness. What it implies is, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for all of it. 
Not picking and choosing, not looking at an area and saying, hey, I'll be righteous here, but over here, this is where I'm going to fail. But I'm going to judge this person over here because they fail in that one. No, he's saying, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for all of righteousness, all of conforming to God's will. And man, sometimes that's not always been the hallmark of Christianity. Too many times we like to pick and choose certain little elements and go, I'll be righteous there, but this one, not so much. Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for all of it. Where every area of your life you're looking at going, hey, how can I walk step in step with what God is calling me to do? How can I walk step in step with what God is calling me into serving? How can I walk step in step with God every day? And we also have to do this with intensity. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now, that's an area where most of us, if we're really honest, we have a hard time understanding what that can really look like. Now, in Jesus' day, when he's talking to these people, he's talking to people that they didn't have the economic system that we have. They didn't have the supply and distribution system that we have. These were people that they would, at times, go days and days without eating because there was no food. So hunger and thirst for them means something a little bit different. Now, it hasn't completely changed because one in six people on planet Earth experience what they call hunger, like legit malnutrition. In fact, every minute someone passes away in that. Like somewhere by the end of this message, there will be dozens of people that died because they are experiencing hunger. That's why I love our pantry. Like yesterday, we served like 160 people. We had like 24 volunteers. Like we are trying to, yeah, that, that was great. It was a great day. Got to meet lots of new people, pray with them. Like this is something that we're trying to combat. But if we're honest, in a Western culture, most of us, like, man, I always had food growing up. Like, I may not have liked it. Like, my mom was really good about taking squash. And if you cut squash up and fry them, they look just like fried potatoes. And my mom would never tell us what those were until we actually dug into it and gagged a little bit because I hate squash. But, like, for me and for most of us, like, hunger and thirst are passing little moments. But some people have really experienced that. I was reading a book a little bit earlier this week, and I was talking about this general during World War I. They were fighting in Africa, and they kind of outran their water supply camels, not trucks, camels. And uh, they were chasing after this Turkish army. And uh, the Turks were retreating. They were chasing after them. They've outrun their water supply. And then they found themselves in a weird spot where it was, we cannot go back, you will die. And in fact, people were starting to black out. He said he didn't know how many of his soldiers just kind of wandered off into the desert never to be seen again. And when you experience extreme dehydration like that, he talked about their eyes being bloodshot, lips cracking, tongue swelling, like it's brutal, like to be that thirsty. But the only option was, hey, we know the city that these guys are trying to get to, and we know that there are wells there. And he said they marched, because that was their only option. And then they fought. They had to still fight this army off. And he said, we fought like men who knew they were going to die if they didn't. Like, finally took this army out, and they get into this city, and there are these huge, like, wells. And over a four-hour period, they methodically went through and made sure every person was able to get water. And when you hunger and thirst for righteousness like that, you, you actually learn something. In fact, the general in order said, he said, I believe 
that we all learned our first real Bible lesson on that march from Bathsheba to Shira Walls. If such were our thirst for God, for righteousness, for his will in our life, a consuming, all-embracing, preoccupying desire, how rich in the fruits of the Spirit we would be. Like, if, if you know what it is to hunger and thirst in a way that's desperate, in a way that is life-altering, because if I don't get food, I'm going to starve. If I don't get water, I'm going to die of dehydration. That's what Jesus is likening to. That's the intensity that we are called to chase after righteousness with. That type of intensity. The intensity that says, if I don't get that, I have nothing. And so what does that look like when we put it all back together? The takeaway is, when we intensely desire true and full righteousness, we find true satisfaction. And when we find that, if we are a people that are satisfied Others should see something different in us. Like if we have fully been satisfied by Christ, like if we know what that experience looks like, others should see it. It should change the way that we talk. It should change the way that we serve. It should change the way that we literally go to work. We would look like a different person. I would say we would look like, and this isn't on the screen. I'm just going to read it for a second. We would look like David. In Psalm 42, David says this, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Now here's the thing. I don't talk like that very often. Like there is something about a man, like after God's own heart, this is a manly man that can write, as a deer pants for the water, so my soul pants for you. Like that's just not language we use a lot, right? Like I got good friends in the room, like Don, man, good guy, soul pants for you. Like this, that doesn't happen. Like I don't say things like that. But David, because he has thirsted for righteousness, because he has chased after God, can write something as deep as that. And again, he's talking about real thirst. He's like, look, as a deer is out there knowing if I don't get to the stream, I'm going to die. That's the way I feel about your righteousness, God. That's the way I feel about your spirit. I want to chase after that. I want to be changed. When you experience righteousness like David experienced, you can write things like that. You can live a life that people look at and go, man, you seem satisfied. Yes. How? Tell them why. Tell them why. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Look in verse 6. It says, or I'm sorry, verse 7. It says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now I want to, again, kind of unpack this, but you got to be careful how you read that one. Because if you read it, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy, you can kind of look at it and go, okay, I am merciful towards others, therefore God will be merciful towards me. Yes, in one sense, but that would also undo a lot of other scripture where that almost just sounds work-based. Like, you're the one, okay, because you were merciful, God's going to be merciful for you. I would say there's a little bit different equation to it. Here's what I call the mercy equation. Because you have been shown mercy equals be merciful plus you will be shown mercy. There's a lot of mercy in that, right? Here's where it all starts. God is merciful to you. It all begins with that. In all of this, this is people that look at and say, we need to remember this. If you are in Christ, if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, if you've been made new, you are in a constant state of mercy 
all the time. Mercy has just been poured out on you for all of your existence. All of these people, when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, the poor in spirit have been shown mercy. Blessed are those who mourn, those who mourn have been shown mercy. Blessed are the meek, the meek have been shown mercy. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst, they've been shown mercy. It all starts with the mercy that God has poured out on us. That's where it begins. We can show mercy because mercy has been shown to us. And so from that, knowing that, okay, it starts with we have been shown mercy, now we read it again. Blessed are the merciful. So now we're going to be merciful because mercy was shown to us and then mercy is going to be shown back. David's another really good example in this. Like David has like two moments in scripture where it's not his best time. One of them's pretty big. He has a guy murdered. One sleeps with the dude's wife, it's his friend, and then has him killed. Like that's kind of a big deal. And this is like one of the patriarchs, one of the biggest names in scripture. How could God be merciful to that? It turns out David had shown a lot of mercy on his way there. Like, there were a number of times where David could have completely taken Saul, the previous king, out, and he showed him mercy. And then you watch what happens in a moment of really rough sin, David has shown mercy. So we're merciful, and we receive that back. So here's what mercy kind of looks like. One, the merciful will show it to the weak and poor, not take advantage. Like, within those groups... Those who don't have a voice, the poor, the downtrodden. Too many times those groups are taken advantage of in a lot of different ways. Sometimes it's from a government standpoint, this isn't a political thing, and then sometimes even in ministry. Because there are certain commercials you can watch where people are preying on poor and weak people. And I don't mean praying over them, I mean P-R-E-Y. Like taking advantage, robbing them basically. The merciful look at the weak and the poor and say, what can I do to show you mercy? See, mercy and grace sometimes get interchanged, but they are a little bit different. Grace is poured out on the undeserving. Mercy is poured out on the miserable. (laughs) And so we see people and say, hey, it's not that I'm taking advantage. I'm going to show mercy to those. They will look for those that weep and mourn. The Bible said, blessed are those who mourn. The merciful look actively and say, hey, who are people that are hurting Who are people going through a rough situation? Who are people that are downtrodden? Who are people that are experiencing loss and say, hey, what can I do to show mercy to this person, to be graceful towards them? The merciful will forgive and restore broken relationships. And that one can be tough, right? Because some of you know, like right now, you're in a relationship and you go, this thing is broke. (laughs) Like it's not how it's supposed to be. And I know it needs to be fixed, but man, that's going to take a lot of work. And man, that's going to take me initiating it maybe that's going to take me saying okay i realize i sin you sin too but i'm going to be the one that instigates this conversation but the merciful will look at that and say i will do that the merciful will also know that they have been shown mercy throughout all of that merciful is also uh will not expect more than a person can do like be a merciful parent and this is one I have to like remind myself of this a good bit because I can be a jerk at times. Um, look, sometimes kids are, guess what, kids. And sometimes you have to show a little bit of mercy and go, look, I can't expect my three-year-old to be a brain surgeon quite yet. Like that's just more than it can be put on him. I need to show mercy in those moments. And the merciful care about souls of all mankind. Merciful look out on a world and go, 
you're jacked up. <laughs> and you're broken. I was talking with a buddy of mine this week. He's going into politics. And he's, he's in a process right now of trying to, like, establish where he stands on things. And he's got a friend that he hasn't seen in 20 years. Like, it was a guy he knew in high school. And he has become an absolute troll on everything that he puts up. And so we were having conversations of, like, how do I address this with this guy? And, uh, man, this week, as soon as my buddy put something up, this guy responds, and we were looking at it. And my buddy said, you know, I, what do you expect? Like, dead people don't make the right decision. <laughs> and that's true. But you care about those. Merciful look and go, yes, what you're doing I believe to be wrong, but I'm going to try and love you through that to show you what can make it right. And that's only through Christ. So blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Look at us. We're already on a new page. Two messages in. That's pretty good. Last one, verse 8. It says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, again, the context of this is a little different when we read it in 2020 versus, like, the year 30. Um, Today, most of us, when we think of, okay, what's most important in our bodies, we think of our brain, which is a pretty amazing organ. Um, I don't know if you've ever held one. I have. Um, I don't think she's here today, but we've got a student that goes here, goes to Hardin-Simmons, and uh, about a year ago, she messaged me. She said, hey, this is a little weird, um, but... The cadaver lab at Hardin-Simmons, all the doctors are believers, and once a year they invite local pastors to see how the body is fearfully and wonderfully made. Would you like to come? <laughs> yes. My wife was like, that's the weirdest thing ever. But I'm like, this is amazing for two hours. And yes, it was a little different. But for two hours, these doctors walked us from brain to toe through the human body. It was very respectful and literally holding a human brain. Um, it's an amazing thing. It let's us think. There's like 100,000 miles of blood vessels in it. There's like 100 billion neurons firing in your brain right now. But most of the time in 2020, we, that's what we think is the center of our entire existence, the brain. Well, in Jesus' day, it was the heart. They knew there was something up there, but they hadn't done a lot of anatomy, but the heart was the biggest thing. The heart was the key to your entire existence. It was essentially like your soul. So when he says, blessed are the pure in heart, how can you have a pure heart? That's a big, big question. Like, how is it that I, as a sinful, broken man, can have a pure heart? It only comes from God. God wants you to see him, and he's made a way. That's the beautiful thing. Like, if this was an impossibility, this would be a terrible thing to write, because, man, that's something that we look at and go, man, I want that. Blessed are the pure in heart. They get to see God, and he's made a way. And it used really descriptive language in Ezekiel where God says, and you've heard me say this a number of times, he says, I'm going to take your heart of stone. Like I'm going to take that out, this cold, calloused thing that is dead, and I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. Like I'm going to put something alive inside you. Man, it's only made possible through Jesus Christ. He says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's only through Christ that we can have that heart of stone removed and be given a heart of flesh. And in those moments, for those who are pure in heart, you get to see God. 
And then the question kind of becomes, okay, what does that look like? Like, is he just going to show up, like knock on the door? Eh, a little different. Um, even, you know, Moses, God goes, look, you can't look at me. Like, it's too much. I'm going to put you in this mountain. I'm going to cover you up. You get to see the back of me. Um, but here it says, you get to see God. Where do you see him? You see him all over the place. For those that are pure in heart, they can literally just walk outside and go, it's God. You know, when people ask the question, how do you know that God exists? Like, for those that are pure in heart in Christ, literally at times, it's standing on a mountaintop and going, I am small. Like, looking out at this creation that God has made in nature and go, this did not just happen. Like, this is not chaotic. This was created by the creator. Like, you can see God in nature standing on a beach, looking out. If it's Galveston, there's some stuff in the water, but that's okay. But you look out and you just go, man, there are trillions of gallons of water in front of me. There are a billion organisms floating around out there, and God created all of them. Like those that are pure in heart can look at something as simple as an ocean or a mountain or a tree, just look at nature, and you see God. You look in Scripture. For those that are pure in heart, as you read, like, nothing reads like this. I've told you guys, you read a verse a hundred times, and then the hundred and first time, you go, I did not see that. That's the beauty of Scripture, because it is alive. We see God all over it. It's convicting at times. We read it and go, I have some areas to work on. It's encouraging. And we read it and we go, man, God is so good. Look at the things that he's done for me. Like, those that are pure in heart, as you read through Scripture, you see God all over it. And then even in our own family here, you look in our church, and you see God working. You look at some of the faces of people that were in the pantry yesterday, and I love looking out, and I saw several of you praying over people. Like, don't really know these people. Get to hear some of their story and go, you know what? I want to go before the God of the universe and pray for you. Man, I see God working in people. Right now, kids being taught, babies being loved on, missionaries all over the place. Like when you look within our church, those that are pure in heart go, man, I see God all over this. Because if we don't see God in what we do, we're doing it wrong, right? Like if we are doing something and we go, man, it was great, but God wasn't there, then why are we doing that? Like those that are pure in heart can look around the church body these people that we come together with, that we worship with, friends, family, all of the above, and go, man, I see God all over that. So blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So what do we do with these? Like beatitudes, these supreme blessedness. One of the questions when we leave here today and even next week as we wrap up this little section my hope is that you have a desire to be blessed. <laughs> like sometimes we forget about that. We kind of think the Christianity thing of, you know, you know piety and, and, and meekness and, you know, but we're quiet. No, you should want to be blessed, all right? And that doesn't, that's not prosperity gospel. That's not, you know, when you leave here, you want to be blessed just financially. No, but my hope for you is that you would want to be blessed by God. That you look at these things and go, I want that in my life. I want satisfaction. I want to inherit the kingdom. I want to see God. And in order to do those things, it's walking in obedience and it's hungering and thirsting for righteousness. All right, let's pray.
God, we love you. God, this week I pray that we would hunger and thirst not for success, not for popularity, but righteousness. God, that we would be so satisfied with you. And the beauty in that is when we find that, it's not like it ends, it just builds on itself, God, that we would always strive for righteousness so that we would have our satisfaction in you more than anything else. God, if there's someone here today, God, they don't know what it looks like to see you, God, I pray that you would be all over them. God, that they would see that, yeah, I can't do this on my own. And if that's you today, I, I pray that right now you would just begin to talk to God. Say, Father, forgive me. I know I'm a sinner, but I want to turn away from that. I want to walk with you through Jesus Christ. God, I pray that we would be a church that is merciful, a body that is pure in heart. We ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen.